A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. breeder in America. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites and not just another episode. This is part two of our ongoing series, World War I and the Jews. So before I start, um, I just want to make a quick correction from um, another episode, not part of our series. I just recently had a, an episode about, um, about Saul Lieberman. And I mentioned the Chazinish's connection to the writer. And I meant to say Chaim Grade, which was, uh, Chazinish had a very close um, affiliation with the writer Chaim Grade. And I mistakenly said someone else. So just put that on the record. I also want to give a nice hello to our listeners in South America and Argentina. I got a lot of, getting a lot of feedback from from out there, so wanted to acknowledge that. Uh, thank you, and and welcome aboard. Happy you're joining us. So we left off um, last time in World War One and the Jews. A little bit about the battlefields and where the Jews stood as as far as citizens of the warring countries and on on the battlefield itself, their villages, their towns became battlefields. So I want to elaborate on both those uh, topics today, both on the participation of Jews in the war itself, meaning Jewish soldiers in the various different armies and the challenges they faced and the story a little bit of, of those Jews, as well as the result of the fact that, especially in the Eastern Front, um, in Eastern Europe, in the Russia Russian Empire, the areas of Lithuania and Poland, and then further south in Galicia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, how many Jews were forced into exile as a result of the war literally reaching their homes. So it's both the Jews at home going into exile and the uh, Jews serving in the army is the topic of today in part two. So I'll start off with a, a story which you know, who knows if it's true, but there are many others like it that it was true. There's a Chassid down in Hungary, who's drafted into the Austrian army. Again, Hungary is part of the greater Austria, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they're fighting against Russia. They're fighting also 
down in southern Europe, in Serbia, Yugoslavia, what's known as the Balkans, and he's drafted in, he's in a in combat on the front lines, and during a bayonet charge, they which was a common battle tactic uh, during World War One, they charge out of their trenches with fixed bayonets, and they tried to overcome uh, the front lines of the enemy combatants' uh, trenches across the field. A very risky venture, and with his with his bayonet open, he's. Um, lowering it to stab, and he's talking about very close hand-to-hand combat in these conditions during World War One, which is a very much described in in, in all the memoirs and all the stories of World War One. Not, not not limited at all to Jewish stories in the general history of World War One. And he's about to stab a Russian soldier. They arrived at the trench on the other side, and he's lowering his bayonet and about to literally stab uh, this Russian soldier, and he hears this soldier cry out in Yiddish, uh, what's going to be with my family? I'm a father of children, Shema Yisrael, something along those lines. And he realizes it's a Jew. And he lowers his bayonet, and he gets himself uh, out of that, excruciates himself from that situation, and he eventually deserts from the army. Now, an army deserter can be punished severely, and he makes his way, lo and behold, to Kerastir, and he goes to Rabshayla of Kerastir, and Rabshayla hides him, and uh, and as most uh, stories of Rabshayla of Kerastir uh, that are told today, whether they're you know whether they actually happened or not, but it's in some variation or another that they, they live happily ever after. That's that's how most of the stories end, and that's how this story ends as well. He's able to successfully leave the army, and and it's wonderful. Now, again, the the, the story is bringing out a point which is true, and that's very important to emphasize. And that that story, the story, the, the point that it's being brought out is the the main collective memory. And there's literally thousands of stories that come to illustrate it. And there's so many variants of that story um, of uh, how of how Jew was fighting Jew because they were each serving their country. And if you go through one army after another, both in the Central Powers and the Allied Powers. In the Russian army, in the Austro-Hungarian army, in the German army, in the French army, in the British army, in the American army, and anyone else who was involved in any way, shape, or form, maybe not the Japanese army. I don't know if there are any Jews in the Japanese army. That might be the exception to the rule. But besides for that, everywhere, the Jews were fighting everywhere, and therefore you had a very unique situation, which it probably happened before in history, but definitely not on this scale. And um, you had, on every front, in every battle, you would have Jew fighting at Jew because they're wearing different uniforms. And that made a very um, um, interesting situation and in a certain way tragic situation. Because um, unlike the story that I just related, many of them didn't end well. And and obviously, it wasn't always hand-to-hand combat. You didn't see who you were shooting. You couldn't tell who you were shooting at. You didn't ask them, what's your name first? And is your name Beryl? Okay, I won't shoot at you. It didn't work like that. 
This is war. This is a battlefield. And that's the enemy. And this is a test of Jewish solidarity. You're going into battle and knowing that you might be, again, it's a small percentage. You might be shooting at a fellow Jew. And here, and here we see an interesting thing. Why did Jews serve in all these armies? They served in all the armies because the Jews had received emancipation in the previous century. One of the expressions of emancipation in most countries, right? In Tsarist Russia, they had to serve in the army even without emancipation. But in most countries, one of the expressions of emancipation was that they had the privilege of serving in the army of that respective country, and then they could express their patriotism in that fashion, that they're part of the nationalism of that country. They believe in the nationalism of that country. They, they believe that they're part of it. They're not a distinct national entity, which was one of the goals of the, of the, you know, the era of Romanticism and, and of nationalism. And, and here they are. This is their opportunity to fight. It, just to put into perspective, in, in, in the German army, there were approximately, again, these are estimate, these estimates, these numbers, there are approximately 12,000 German Jews who fall in the fields of battle in the service of the Kaiser, right? Kaiser Wilhelm II, wearing the Imperial German Army uniform, and they, they fall in the fields of battle. I mean, they're killed. They're, 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 uh, they're combat deaths. Many of them win the Iron Cross. And this, the stories are literally endless. Talk about religious Jews, secular Jews. I remember, remember reading a memoir about how this is a, a Yekesha Jew, a very religious Jew from Frankfurt, how he proudly said about serving in the Kaiser's army during World War I, and how he said he got army rations that had a heksher from Reb Shleim Breuer back in Frankfurt, his own Rav, Reb Shamshin Hirsch's son-in-law. So they were accommodating in the army as well, right? And they were entrenched into German society. I mean, my father-in-law relates how his uncle was the seventh child in his family, and the seventh child was named after the Kaiser. His uncle was Uncle Wilhelm, because he's named after the Kaiser. That was the, they, were, they were very entrenched in society. I had a neighbor on my block who who related to me that his grandfather won an Iron Cross for bravery in battle during World War I in the German army. And he, he was the owner of a factory in the interwar period. And after Hitler and the Nazis came to power in the 1930s, he escaped from Germany, but in the factory safe, he left his Iron Cross with a little note saying that he doesn't need this Iron Cross anymore as he no longer... Uh, has any you know any connection to it? So anyone who wants can take it. So this 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 part of his German identity is lost. But at the time, they're fighting bravely for their country. It's their country. And a very close friend of mine, a friend of friend, a colleague, worker, a researcher uh, who I work with, uh, just pointed out to me recently, and I and I uh, posted it appropriately on the official Jewish History Soundbites Twitter account, that more German Jews died fighting for Germany during World War I, which I mentioned was about 12,000, than Israeli soldiers have died, been killed in, in battle, fighting for the IDF since the founding of the State of Israel till today, which is about 9,500 soldiers. 
And hopefully it'll never beat the record. Hopefully it will remain a very small number and it shouldn't grow. But it gives context. First of all, it gives context as to the horror of World War I, the sheer amount of fatalities, the amount of soldiers involved, and the terrible battles that were involved. That, that definitely reflects itself in the numbers when the Jews are a minuscule uh, member of the population, and yet there's so many battlefield deaths. It just gives the sheer size of what World War I is all about. But beyond that, it also gives the relative... Uh, uh, fighting participation that the Jews had serving in these European countries because it's their country. And then you had a situation where it's Jew fighting Jew. So it's definitely a reflection of Jewish society at the time. And um, and there's hundreds of thousands of Jews all together in the various different armies who are soldiers. I mean, in in the Eastern Front, uh, in, in the Russian army, there's this there's always a threat of of the yeshiva guys and and all kinds of people like that serving in the Russian army. And there's some, some famous future Gedoyle Yisrael who are yeshiva guys at the time who serve in the Russian army during World War One in and around World War One. Some of them were slightly before, some were slightly after. But Rav Hyman served in the Russian army. The Stipler famously served in the Russian army. And uh, in fact, it's an interesting record. I, the distinction... Of I think the only father and son Gadol pair who served in armies is the Stipler and his son Yibadel Lechaim Reb Chaim Kanievsky who served for a very short time in the IDF actually during the War of Independence didn't really see much combat it seems like it was only for a day or two but he served so uh, so um, so that's that's uh, that's a, and the Stipler was for quite a bit of time in the Russian army. So you have you have you have that 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 participation as well. Um, an interesting side note to that is the fact that the German army had Jewish chaplains to serve the needs of the 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 soldiers in the German army, and these chaplains served as as in their capacity as a fascinating bridge between East and West, which had ramifications in the post World War One era. In in a few different capacities, which I'll mention, there was there was um, uh, a couple of the uh, Karlbachs, uh, Rabbi Yosef Karlbach, who was later famous as the Rav in Hamburg, a very brilliant man, wrote enormous amount of writing and very creative and a wide diversity of writing and thinker, and, uh, an amazing person. He was killed by the Nazis in Riga during World War Two. He didn't leave uh, Hamburg. Um, Jewry dwindling community in the years leading up to the war, but in World War One back then he was a chaplain, and there were others as well. There's, uh, a few of them were quite famous, and they were Naftali Karlbach, other others, even non Karlbachs, believe it or not, other rabbanim in 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 the German army serving as chaplains. A couple of them were in stationed in Kovna. And one of the strangest stories of World War I, and also one of the strangest stories in the history of the Lithuanian yeshiva world, is that the German army sets up a yeshiva in Kovna in the Slabatki yeshiva building, because the Slabatki yeshiva was in exile, which I'll hopefully I'll get to in the second part of, of today's episode. Excuse me. And, um, and, the, and, the, and, and they set up a yeshiva, they call it the Slabatki yeshiva, so it's it's kind of like, you know, a new Slabatki yeshiva. The ones who are affiliated with it 
are not only local rabbis, such as Rabbi Horovitz, who is actually related to the Slobodka Rosh Yeshiva, who is the Rav in Aleksut, he was a son-in-law of Rav Shraga Feivel Frank, he was part of the Slobodka situation, but it's also these German ca- chaplains who are involved with setting up this yeshiva, this German-Jewish chap- chaplains, Rabbi Yosef Karlbach, like I mentioned, and they're involved in, in the in the setting up of the Slobodka yeshiva that, as far as I know, the only yeshiva in history that a non-Jewish army sets up during wartime for their own reasons, which is a whole story in itself, where they need to you know, maintain normalcy with the local population in, of the Jewish community in Kovna, and there's some sort of military government running the city, so they, they took care of educational needs as well, and there's a lot more to it, obviously, but, and then there's the how Slobatki Yeshiva, the real Slobatka, who was out in exile, when they come back to Slobatka, how that joins together with this new Slobatki Yeshiva set up by the German army. And that's also an interesting story, how they reunify together after the war. So, interesting also, a, a, um, there was a German Jewish soldier who was a very religious soldier, and he was very, uh, one of the things he accepted upon himself when he was serving in the army in World War I was that he has to daven every day, and it saved his life because he was in the trenches and he had to go daven. And he said he's it's not during no, there's no shooting going on. He can slip away to daven because he does not want to miss a day to daven. So he goes off to the side and he didn't have anything to cover himself. His head he wanted to cover his head with something, some sort of uh, head covering while he. While he prays, and he, the only thing he was able to do was to take off his socks and put them on his head so he would have a head covering. And so here he's uh, standing off to the side with socks on his head, talking to himself. And his commanding officer passes by, and he sees that he lost his mind, which was common. There was a lot of battle fatigue, there's a lot of nervous breakdowns, there were a lot of and, you know, not all these things were understood in those days, the trauma of war and the, the, uh, the shock, and, 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 and many of these soldiers were released and were sent home. So he was, this officer wasn't that surprised. He was obviously suffering from battle fatigue, probably was experiencing some sort of nervous breakdown. He's standing off to the side talking to himself with socks on his head. So he sends him home. And he's, you know, he does not have to serve afterwards in combat, and perhaps not even in the army altogether, and most of the members of his unit were killed. This is actually a real story. I heard it from, uh, from a, a descendant of this soldier. So, so there you have that, that aspect of the story as well. This is, you know, in the German army, the Russian army I mentioned, there's in, the, in the Western Front also, like I said, the French army, America, the United States joins the war Quite late, They're, they get, only get involved at a later stage of the war. But when they come, so American Jews, many of them first or second generation immigrants, they're back on the European continent. They're back where they themselves or their parents came from, and now they're fighting as American soldiers. Many of them, this is their sign of integration into American society. There was, In, in fact, there was a son of one of the great uh, Torah leaders in Eastern Europe who left his father's path 
and went to live in the United States, and he wanted to leave it all behind. He he uh, he. He became American. He was naturalized as an American citizen. He moved out and got a job. And he changed his name to an Americanized name. And he left his whole background behind, the aristocracy of the Lithuanian Torah world. And he joins, he volunteers to join the American army. He's in, uh, he's, he serves with distinction. He gets wounded in battle. And he's sitting there fighting on the Western Front, in the trenches of France, getting injured in an advance on the Hindenburg Line in the last months of the war before the armistice is signed, in November of 1918. And here he is on the other side of Europe. On the other side is where he came from. He had immigrated to the United States just a few years before. And he came from the other side of Europe, from the the Torah world of Eastern Europe. In the meantime... His parents, his family, his former yeshiva had gone into exile to to escape the war on the Eastern Front. And little did they know that their relative was now back on the continent fighting in an American uniform. And you know they they didn't know they didn't know that they were both they're both back involved in the same horrible World War One. And that's 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 what another aspect of of the war and. And this story kind of brings us into the second topic of the exile. So what happens on, it's mainly on the Eastern Front as the battle lines uh, are drawn and the German army advances towards Russia and the Austro-Hungarian army advances on Russia and then, of course, Russia pushes them back. Um, Austro-Hungarian army, they never really pushed the German army back. And... Um, and the, the, the Jews of Eastern Europe, many of them go into exile. Now, there's a lot of types of exile. There's literally millions of Jews that are displaced. And there's a lot to elaborate on this exile. So I'll just try to touch on some of the main points. Um, first of all, which direction are they going? And it's interesting that they go in two opposite directions. The Galicia Jews, they move from east to west. And the Russian Jews, Polish, Lithuanian, Russian Jews, the Jews of the Russian Empire, in other words, they, excuse me, they move from west to east. And the reason is very simple. The Russians are advancing against the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That's one reason that they want to leave from east to west. And the second and more main reason is that they gravitate towards the capital city of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is Vienna. And it, Vienna is literally teeming with refugees. It, it becomes hundreds of thousands of, of refugees. Many of them eventually settle down in Vienna, and Vienna becomes uh, close to two hundred thousand Jews of the population in the interwar period. Most of them are not native Viennese Jews. Most of them are Galicianer Jews. Many of them Hasidim who settle down in Vienna uh, because of World War One, which is fascinating because for 200 years, the Hasidic movement never succeeded in moving past Eastern Europe. It never succeeded in striking deep roots in Germany, in Austria, in Central Europe. They remained in the Eastern European heartland. And here, Vienna becomes a center of Hasidus. becomes a center of lots of Rebbes live there. Lots of big tzaddikim from Galicia, from Eastern Europe, move there and settle down there in the interwar period. And that's a phenomenon that needs to be understood and studied because 
in the post-war, post-Second World War, all of a sudden we have a rebirth of Hasidus, and it's considered the first time that Hasidus is able to to grow and and flourish outside of Eastern Europe, the United States, in Eretz Yisrael, which they already had a small community even before the war, but especially the United States. And everyone is surprised. How is Hasidus able to survive outside of Eastern Europe? That's They never were able to spread. They never were able to get to Western Europe. And really the phenomenon does not start in the post-Holocaust world in America, New York. It really starts in Vienna in post-World War One, And it's because of the refugees who arrived there. So that's definitely something that needs to be studied, researched, and talked about. And, uh, and we'll just touch on it over here. So they're, they're, the Viennese Jews are going from uh, mainly from uh, from east to west. There are exceptions. There are Galicia Jews who are going from west to east or just remaining in the area. You know, that the Belzer Rebbe, the Rebbe Bissachatay, goes not that far away. It's actually going south. He goes from Belz to Munkach and he ends up in the territory of the Mincha Salazar of Munkach. And that's not a that not that's not really good. It ends up being a very uh, bitter and quite protracted uh, dispute, and, and, and a lot a lot a lot goes on between uh, Bells and Munkach during those years. But again, it's a result of the displacement of World War One and the exile that people are forced out of their comfort zones and into new places, and then and then uh, and then things uh, ar- issues and challenges arise. So that's in Galicia. In Russia, the Germans, German armies advancing through the Russian Empire, and naturally, people are running away from the battlefield, they go east. Not only that, but the Russians are, for the first time since the partition of Poland in the late 18th century, when the, when the Russian Empire gobbled up a large chunk of the Polish kingdom, inheriting millions of Jews in the process, and because the Romanovs, the Russian czars, did not like Jews that much, they confined them to what was called the Pale of Settlement. And legally, the Jews were not allowed to live outside the Pale of Settlement. And in practice, there were a lot of Jews who lived outside of the Pale of Settlement. There's all types of licenses that people could get to live outside the Pale, um, which is also a fascinating story. Perhaps one day we'll examine the Pale and, and that process of leaving the Pale of Settlement, and who got to leave and who didn't, and what was the purpose of the Pale of Settlement, and, and how was life like inside there, that's definitely a whole chapter of our people's history. But what's important, for our, relevant for our discussion is, is that the Tsar made it officially legal for the Jews to live outside the Pale of Settlement during World War I. So this would enable the Jews to flee the areas of the battlefields of the war and move east into the Russian interior. Now, why did the Tsar do that? It's because of the reality of the situation. They, everyone needed somewhere to run. And not only that, but a lot of the exile, a large portion of those who were exiled was not as a result of the battlefield. It was because of the Tsar himself. The Tsar did not trust the Jews. He felt they were a fifth column. And it's part of his anti-Semitic uh, uh, view of the Jews. So therefore, he he um, he um, uh, he he exiles Jews and Jewish communities in, in its entirety, regions in its entirety, 
from the area of where he anticipated the Germans would come, he already exiled them to the Russian interior, and he eventually allowed them to leave the Pale of Settlement as well. For instance, the area, the whole district of Kovna, there was an expulsion order, really. We wouldn't even call it an exile. It was actually an expulsion order. Um, it was a strategic area militarily. The Tsar didn't trust the Jews, and he forces them into exile. So the exiles work very different in each place and time. Some are right in the beginning of the war. Some are in the middle. Some are as a result of the Tsar. Some are as a result of the battle. Some are as a result of of uh, the ensuing uh, chaos that that uh, happened uh, in 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 this power vacuum that that the war created in a lot of these areas. There's a lot of looting. There's a lot of pogroms that really also happened later on, especially in the Ukraine, with towards the end of the war and the Russian Revolution, which is perhaps something we'll get to in the part three of this uh, of this series. Now into this vacuum. The Germans come, and the Germans came so quickly into the certain areas, parts of Poland, parts of Lithuania, that, that many Jews in those areas didn't have time to go into exile. For instance, the Tels Yeshiva, which is Western Lithuania, and, and Tels community, all the communities of Western Lithuania, they didn't, they didn't go into exile. They remained exactly where they were. Things were actually pretty calm. The battle didn't reach there. The German army occupied the area quite quickly. They even had very decent relations, amicable relations with relationship with the German army and administration during World War One, and that remained a ironic and tragic positive memory by many Jews there, so that they didn't understand and perceive the threat. Uh, Twenty years later, when uh, when it was different Germans who arrived, and it wasn't such a good uh, relationship to say the least in Poland as well. And like I go back to the issue of the chaplains, Agudis Yisrael, which is talked about, and there's even a founding conference in Katowice in 1912 before World War I, but it doesn't really get off the ground until after the war, especially 1923, the first great Knesia, the Knesia Gedeila in Vienna in in the summer of 1923. Now, Agudis Yisrael is founded, uh, formed and envisioned by... uh, Laymen from Frankfurt, Balabatim, we'd call them, Yekesha Balabatim from Frankfurt in Germany. And how does it get to the Polish masses, the masses of Polish Jewry, which is where it really takes off, especially after World War I? And the answer is, again, the agents here are German Jewish chaplains, rabbis who end up in Warsaw, who end up in Poland, who meet up with the Ger Rebbe, who becomes the leader of Agudah Israel after the war. And they discuss the ideas of the Agudah and the ideals of the Agudah and why it's important. And, 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 and they, they, you know, they, they do, they do, we would call it, I guess, like missionary work, you know, in a good way. They, they spread the idea and they try to convince and gain adherence, especially among the rabbinical leadership of Poland, and it's through German Jewish chaplains, who are, chaplains, excuse me, who are attached to the German army, and they're the ones who spread the ideas of the Agoda in amongst Polish Jewry during the war, because they're there with the occupation of the German army. So, so you have a lot of exiles going on, and uh, maybe we'll just go back for a second to what I mentioned before about in Galicia the Jews reaching Vienna. Um, my wife's uh, grandmother's family, they, they left Galicia at that time to go to Vienna 
and many others like them, and there's many um, Rebbes who run to Vienna, especially from the Rizhin dynasty. Uh, the the Chartkova Rebbe, the Sadiger Rebbe, the Bayana Rebbe, the Kapishnitzer Rebbe, all those of their, the Rizhin dynasty, and of course there are many more in the Rizhin dynasty. It's a quite a big, uh, a lot of branches. Uh, a great, great, great dynasty and great story. And they all end up in Vienna, among other Rebbes too. Now this is this is this is this is an amazing story. First of all, the urbanization of the Jewish people in Eastern Europe had already been a process that was going on for quite some time. Um, they were leaving the shtetl and going to the big cities, and World War One speeded up this process. In other words, there's this sudden and mass or uh, urbanization, and many of them stay in in Vienna after the war. In fact. It was in Poland also, just two suburbs of Warsaw, Piazetsna and Ger, the Piazetsna Rebbe and the Ger Rebbe both moved to Warsaw during the World War I. The Ger Rebbe moves back to Ger after World War I, but his main base of operations is still Varsha, it's still Warsaw. The Piazetsna Rebbe does not move back to Piazetsna. Piazetsna is a suburb of Warsaw, it's almost inside the city, but still, he stays in downtown, he stays in the main part of Warsaw. He only visits Piazetsna afterwards. He remains in Warsaw, as many other Rebbes who moved to Lodz, who moved to, who moved to Warsaw, who moved to the big cities. And now, for the first time again, this is a phenomenon that takes place the first time in the history of Hasidus. Hasidus for 200 years, with a few exceptions here and there. Chais of Lublin definitely lived in a big city. Rabbi Kleinimus Kalman Epstein, the Moror Vishemesh, definitely lived in a big city, he lived in Krakow. Although it's not so well known today, but the Baal Shem lived in a big city. Mezhebish today, when I bring the groups, uh, it seems like a small, backwards little shtetl. But back then, when the Baal Shem lived there, it was actually a big city. So he lived in a big city, relatively. It doesn't, didn't, didn't look like Manhattan, but it, it was relatively a, a large city. And... Um, and so there were exceptions to the rule. And we go to Krakow and we go to Lublin. I tried to engage the groups in saying, how does Hasidus fit into a big city like this? How does it come? And it's a different story of a Rebbe and a Tzaddik setting up a court in a small little shtetl and setting it up in a big city. And we visit both places and we try to analyze and understand how it works as far as the local population is concerned and the community establishment and so on. But here... During World War I, all of a sudden there's a mass migration to the big cities, and the Rebbes, the Tzaddikim, set up their courts in the big cities, in places like Vienna, in places like Warsaw, and that's a change in the whole dynamic of Hasidus. It's no longer, with a few exceptions the other way, it's no longer in the small towns. Many There are those who stay in the small towns after, or go back to the small towns, like I said, with the Bells Rebbe who goes to Munkach, which is not a big city, but it's definitely a larger town than Bells, um, he goes back to Bells after the war, a few years after World War One, but he eventually makes it back. So, so you do have, but 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 again, you have this move to the cities, and just to, just as an example to bring it out with the story of these original rebbes, the original rebbes, all the ones I mentioned, the Chartka, Sadiger, and so on. So they came from a a way, a derech, a philosophy in Hasidus that came from Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhin, which was the derech of Malchus. It was the regal way. And they had these huge regal aristocratic courts and palaces and chariots and horses. And there's definitely 
an opportunity in the future to speak about that, and we'll get to it eventually. But that that ends in World War One. I. I mean, you look around today, and they don't have it, right? The Bayan and Sadiger and whatever remains of the Rishonim dynasty today, it's not the regal court that we have in the in the descriptions and even in the pictures of Husyatin, of Stefanesh, of Sadiger, of of these places of the Rishonim massive courts and palaces and, and, and the regal aristocracy, which was a derech in Hasidus. It was a way. It was a avayda in Hasidus that Rabbi Yisrael Rishon taught, which I'm not going to get into now. But my point is over here is that because of the exile, because of the move to Vienna, that whole way comes to an end. It simply doesn't exist anymore in the physical sense. Maybe in the philosophy it still does. Maybe in the avayda it still does. But in the outward expressions, it simply comes to an end. And that's a result of the war as well. If we move back to Russia, um, there's families and communities that are all going into exile. Uh, Reb Chaim Brisker, along with most of Brisk, it goes into exile. Reb Chaim Brisker ends up in Minsk, and he remains there for most of the war. He goes; His health is failing. He goes back towards Warsaw at the end of the war and ends up in Otvatsk, the resort town outside of Warsaw, where he dies and is buried in Warsaw. But, um, you know, and when his his student, Baruch Ber Leibovich, ends up with his yeshiva from Slabotka, Knesset Beis Yitzchak of Slabotka, ends up in Minsk before they continue south into the Ukraine, which I'll get to soon, Kremenchuk. I was warned by a, a very learned and knowledgeable and also dedicated uh, Jewish History Soundbites listener, that he, as soon as he saw that we're gonna that the series is gonna be about World War One and the Jews, he anticipated that I'm gonna talk about the yeshivas in exile. There are actually two yeshivas, both Slabatki yeshivas, the Alter Slabatki's Musri yeshiva and Rabach Ber Leibovich's anti Musri yeshiva. They both ended up in Kremenchuk in the Ukraine during the war, which I'll get to soon. So he, as soon as he saw the series up, this fellow, this listener, he right away messages me. Don't forget to pronounce Kremenchuk correctly. Don't pronounce it with an N, with a Kremenchung. Pronounce it correctly as Kremenchuk. So I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, because I know you're listening out there. But in any event, before they got to Kremenchuk, they were in Minsk. And Rebach Ber utilizes the opportunity of this whole haphazard situation and, and whole, you know we would call in Israel Balagan, which Israelis think is Hebrew, but it's actually a word in Polish, and it just shows how much influence Polish culture and language and, and, and the two peoples are still connected after all these years, is that we're still using Polish words in Hebrew. So it's a big Balagan in Minsk at the time, and his yeshiva is, is a shadow of its former self, but here he has the opportunity to have his rabbi, the great Reb Chaim Brisker, Give shiurim in his yeshiva for about a year in Minsk before he continues southward to the Ukraine. Then Reb Chaim Brisker gives shiurim to Reb Baruch Bar Leibovitch's yeshiva at that time, and 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 many many more. Reb Chaim Eizer Grzynski in Vilna is forced into exile, and he spends the remainder of the war years in Russia doing a lot of good for Russian Jewry and setting up soup kitchens and helping Jewish soldiers in the Russian army with kosher food and. And helping, uh, you know, people lost in the war and writing halachat shaila. He was doing 
whatever the great leader that Reb Chaim Eiser was doing, but the reality was is that he was not in Vilna during the war. And this came back to haunt him later, because when the Polish government decided to renew the Vilna rabbinate, which had been vacant for almost 150 years at the time, because of a dispute in the 19th century during the Vilna Gaon's time, so they decided to renew the Vilna rabbinate. The one who was appointed chief rabbi of Vilna is Rabbi Yitzchak Rubinstein, who was part of the Mizrahi, who was actually one of the great uh, Talmidim of Slabotka, who was sent to Slutsk, Slutsk. They were known as the Yad HaChazaka, the 14 great students under uh, the leadership of Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, who in 1897 founded the a branch of Slabatki Yeshiva in Slutsk. So Rabbi Yitzhak Rubinstein was one of that, but on the other hand, he wasn't Rabbi Chaim Eiser. So Rabbi Chaim Eiser should have been appointed, and this, of course, uh, brought a whole dispute out, and the Chavetz Chaim stood very strongly that Rabbi Chaim Eiser should really be appointed the uh, chief rabbi of Vilna. This, of course, takes place many years later in the interwar period. But uh, one of the reasons why the communal leaders in Vilna supported Rabbi Yitzhak Rubinstein is because he had remained in Vilna during World War I and had helped the Vilna Jewish community manage during wartime to, to you know, uh, physically, spiritually, and, and by being there. And Rabbi Chaim Eiser, who had been forced into exile, he didn't choose it, he didn't, wasn't on vacation, he worked day and night for the good of his people during that old time. But because he wasn't physically present in Vilna, and this this uh, helped uh, the dispute along uh, at that later time. So the exile is 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 reaching everyone. And what I want to get to at this point um, start. I want to open up the topic, and because it's it's towards the end of um, the time we have, so I'll try to continue it in part three. But there's a major story going on of the yeshivas that go into exile. The great Lithuanian yeshivas are also the ones who go into exile. And there's really several different stories here. There's first of all the ones that don't go into exile. I have to mention those. I mentioned the Tel's yeshiva before because the Germans arrived there too quickly. There's also the opposite case. The case of Slutsk, which is too deep into Russia in the first place that the war doesn't quite get there. So they never leave either. So there are yeshivas that remain stable. Now, almost all yeshivas, they empty out, um, and most of them never recover. And in fact, if you want to get really technical, most yeshivas, Lithuanian yeshivas, simply close down, and most of them never open up again. Um, and the, the yeshivas that are renewed after World War I are either the few yeshivas that succeed in somehow surviving World War I with a skeleton uh, student body, like the Mir, which shrunk from over 300 to, to 50, 60 guys during the war, or Slabatka with similar numbers, Radin even smaller, um, or completely new yeshivas that are founded, like Grodna or Baranovich, which was built on the shadows of an old Navardic, on the ashes, excuse me, of an old Navardic yeshiva, but it was really uh, renewed. But uh, that's also, also for a different time. So the yeshiva move, the yeshiva system movement simply falls apart, um, and it's luckily that there's a few yeshivas, like I mentioned, tells Lutz that don't go into exile; that they are, you know, kind of keeping it going. And most of the talmidim, the students of the yeshivas, go home, 
Some of them are drafted, some run away, uh, and it's almost unsustainable. Now, before I get into the details, which I'll probably only make it more in part three and in, in, in the next time, next installment of this series, I want to share a, a story, a personal story that gave me a real perspective on the yeshivas in exile, uh, specifically, but more in general, about the relating the story of these yeshivas and of the story of the Jewish people in general. It's also about all of Jewish history. When I was a young bacher in the Mir Yeshiva many, many years ago, it sounded old when I said that, but, you know, it feels like many years ago. Um, I was I was by a, attended a Shalom Zacher Friday night, and I remember it was like a very wintry Friday night, and it was Yerushalayim winter, it was very windy and rainy, and and uh, you hear the wind whistling outside and rattling at the windows, and, uh, and, um, and the Shalom Zacher was the occasion of one of the, the the big rabbis in the yeshiva had a grandson. So since it was one of the big rabbis in the yeshiva, so all the other big rabbis of the yeshiva came and attended the Shalom Zacher. The mashgiach of the yeshiva, Rabbi Aaron Chodesh, and, uh, and the ones who have already passed on, uh, Rabbi Fal Shmulevitz, Rabbi Aryeh Finkel, Rabbi Yebarach Finkel. And then there was some of the, at that time, the younger ones, Rabbi Nachman Lubavitz, Rabbi Yisrael Gusin, Rabbi Kalbach, others, there are a lot of great people sitting around one table. And of course, you know, I'm concentrating on the beer and, and uh, you know, I'm there with a bunch of my friends who were, we knew, we knew the person who was making the Shalom Zacher, so we attended. And like I said, it's very cozy inside, it's warm, it's, it's cozy, it's light, and outside it's, it's cold and rainy and, 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 and dark. And and I start to gravitate towards the conversation. What are the all the rabbis, all the all the long frocks and long beards? What are they talking about? What's the, what's the topic? Are they talking and learning? Are they saying divrei Torah? Are they reviewing the shiurim that they said this week? What are they talking about? And I start listening in. And I'm always interested in history, also. And they're talking about. I start to hear snippets of the conversation. They're talking about Slabatka, about the Mir, and I hear the words Poltava, Kremenchunk, I hear certain names being thrown out, and it gets very animated. And what they're talking about was the Mir and Slabatka during World War I, this very topic that we're talking about now, where they went into exile, when did they go into the exile, who stayed, he remembers that this who this uh, great rabbi, who was then a young bacher in Slabatka, he stayed with the yeshiva, and this and this story happened to him, and he ran away, and he stayed, and this one said, no, he was with the mir then, and they're arguing about it, and this one says he knows better, and I was, I was fascinated. And I'm sitting off to the side, and I'm minding my own business, and, and for a change, and, and I hear all these great people, these great Talmidei Chacham, they're not talking and learning. They're talking about the Mir Yeshiva, the Slabatki Yeshiva during World War I, about when they ran away, who ran away, what happened to them, were they in Poltava, were they in Kremenchuk, where did they come from, how, what did they do there, how did they sustain the Yeshiva, and it was fascinating. And it reminded me of uh, when I was a young boy, uh, even, even further back, when I was a young boy, I, I had a, 
uh, one of the many books I read was a, a book on, on baseball history. And uh, at that time, I was in, that was the history I was interested in before I got into Jewish history. And it was a book, like a collection of quirky, strange baseball stories throughout history. And in the introduction, the author, who was some sort of sports writer, he writes in the introduction that uh, there are people who think that baseball is played only when you have nine players, good weather, and a baseball field, and a baseball and gloves and a bat. He said, people like that are mistaken. They're wrong. And they're, they're narrow-minded. Because baseball could be played when it's a cold, wintry night, and there are two people inside around a stove trying to keep warm, and there are only two of them, and they're sitting and relating baseball stories to each other. And that's also when the game of baseball is being played. And I very much related to it at the time, because I always liked history. And I thought of it then, when I was sitting at that Shalom Zachar, I thought of that introduction, and I said to myself, there are those who think that the game of Yiddishkeit, Lahavdil, is played in the base medrash during a shear, at a tish with the Rebbe saying Torah, you know, shaking a lulav, something like that. But the game of Yiddishkeit is also played on a cold wintry night when there's beer on the table and we're talking about Poltava and how the Slabatki Yeshiva got there. That's also part of Yiddishkeit. And therefore, in part three, next episode, stay tuned, don't run away. We'll talk a little bit more about the yeshivas, the great Lithuanian yeshivas who went into exile. What were the challenges that they faced? How did they maintain the yeshiva there? How did they get back and rebuild? And we'll move on to the next topic, of course, which is the Russian Revolution, the Americans joining the war, and how it relates to the Jewish people at the time of World War I. So this is Jewish History Soundbites with Yehuda Gabriel. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to these great places and wonderful places to experience the story of our past and to, and to experience Yiddishkeit in that fashion. And um, you can subscribe also to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.